0: From the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms Podcast with Brian, Mike, and James.
1: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms Podcast. I'm James, along with me is Mike and Brian. Happy to have Mike back with us. Dude, how you been?
2: I've been doing. I've listened to the previous episode, and especially with the stuff that's been going on, um, I really appreciate the support, and I... Very much appreciate yours and any listener prayers.
1: Well, we love you, love your family, and we're glad that you guys are through it and you're back with us. So, without any further ado, I say we jump into Geek Out. And I'm going to go first because I'm particularly excited about what I have been geeking out to recently. What I have been talking about almost every Geek Out, well, not almost, I have been talking about every Geek Out since we started this thing, has been Mass Effect Andromeda. I'm happy to say I'm done with it. Woohoo! I'm done, it's beaten, every planet is at 100% viability, our little corner of the new universe is saved, banners and confetti are thrown in the air, the bad guys are sent running, and I'm just ready to drop my controller like a mic and walk away.
2: Well, spoilers, since the bad guys are running, there's no real need for you playing the storyline now, is there?
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it was enjoyable, it was fun. Did it have as an emotional impact as the first trilogy? No, it did not, but I'm glad that I played it all the way through and then I finished it because I'm a completionist. If I start something, I want to finish it, especially if it's part of a greater world that I particularly enjoy, which I do with the Mass Effect universe. Good deal. I am sad to say, and uh, when we touched on this on an earlier episode about the concept of DLCs, is because of the response that Mass Effect has received, Um, didn't make BioWare as much money as they had wished, I really doubt we're going to see any DLCs for it, which I am actually very upset about because in the game, they, they set up the idea of DLCs so well The whole concept was these arcs containing different species coming to a new universe. And it's hinted at that there's another arc that was coming from the Milky Way that's still out there, but they're not sending out a distress signal. They're sending out a warning to stay away from their ship and uh, this new, fantastic, technology-rich planet to explore. And the framework is there. The groundwork is there. But I doubt we're going to see anything happen with
0: it. That's too bad.
2: Yeah, well— Hopefully they can do something with at least that thread that's out there. If uh, they ever get a reboot on another Mass Effect game, that it, who knows, maybe that'll even be the standalone for something else.
1: You never know. You never know. But for now, I'm done with it. I'm happy to move on to other things. And something that I thought about... After our last show, which was, I'm sad to say, two months ago, but hey, it's a crazy time of year. Our schedules have conflicted, and anyone who has just has life or has children, family, other obligations, knows sometimes it's hard to find time to do your hobbies, to do the things that you love. And it's been like this for us. We love to do this, and just trying to find a Sunday to get together and record has been hellacious. And we finally did it. But since the last time we recorded, I got to thinking, I've been playing a lot of Mass Effect and... One thing I have not done nearly as much as I used to do has been reading. Mm. You know, I used to, and Brian can attest, because I used to always go to him for book recommendations. I could just tear through books at will. And in this past, especially since the boys were born in the last couple of years, the number of books I've read has just been small and pitiful. And I decided it's time to remedy that. So I am glad to say That since the last podcast, I've read through six books, and I just started a seventh.
2: Wow. So let me guess, like in order to pick up your reading, you're now reading to the kids, and you're bringing the two boys along. Okay, now it's story time. We're going to start Name of the Wind, children.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's funny that you put those two things together, because one of the books that I did absolutely devour was Name of the Wind. Nice. Nice. That was one of the first ones that I picked up and read. And then the second one, A Wise Man's Fear. The third one was Moo Ba La 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 by Sandra Boynton. (laughs) I kid, that's not one of the big people books that I read. But the boys, I am just overjoyed to discover. And we just discovered this about two weeks ago. They love it when I read to them.
2: That is something that you can carry through for a good while. Honestly, my kids really didn't understand uh, what it is that I was really into until one day my little five-year-old walks over to the shelf, points at a book, and says, Daddy, read this to me. She was pointing at my single volume of Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, well, maybe. Wait. Let's do this first. And so I went to The Hobbit. Good idea. And— from that time forward, that child has absolutely loved J.R.R. R. Tolkien. And she's just getting to the age where, I mean, she still loves The Hobbit. She's getting to the age like, oh, I think I might give might give the next tome a try.
1: See, that's proper parenting. That is. I read to Michaela from the time she was a little bitty thing. But because of my work schedule, I haven't had nearly as much time to do it with the boys. And so a couple of weeks, I grabbed a couple of like little children's books Hmm. and I sat, but I just started to read, see where it would go. They both just got still and just listened, just sat there while I did it. And then a few days later, I'm on the floor playing with them, and then sat in a chair because my back was hurting, and Jonathan went over, grabbed a book, and crawled to me and held the book up to me. Ooh. So I got it, got a couple more, sat in both of my lap, opened the book, started reading some more. And I'm looking forward, like with you, with your daughter, when the day will come that I will talk to someone and said, yep, I read to my children from the good book every night. Oh, really? What's their favorite part when Frodo destroys the ring?
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all about staying in rhythm with their interest. Exactly. At this age, it's about exposure mm-hmm. and pick up what they're willing to run with.
1: Right now, their favorite topics are dinosaurs dancing, barnyard dances, and three singing pigs going la, la, la but I'm hoping to expand upon that to include other genres and topics.
2: Hold on, I'm making a note. Dinosaur dancing RPG (laughs) mechanics later. Okay, go.
1: (laughs) But besides the joy of reading to my children, the books that I have read just for personal edification, I finally got around to finishing the steampunk novel that Jim Butcher of the Dresden Files wrote. I think it was the, uh, The Aeronauts' Windless. I had started it, then life got busy. It was good, but it didn't quite grab me as much as his Dresden Files books did. But I finally finished that one. And then upon both of your gentlemen's recommendations, I read The Name of the Wind,
2: Mm. and
1: then instantly turned right around and got A Wise Man's Fear.
2: Yeah. Do you want to read the third book?
1: When Will It Be Out?
2: That is exactly the question.
1: (laughs) I do know about the other book that he wrote, same story, but from a different character's perspective. I don't remember that name, but it's... Yes, a it was
0: already
2: tale. Things. Yes, yeah.
1: I'm going to pass on that.
2: It's a different, I enjoyed it. Me too. It's a different feel, mm-hmm. but I enjoyed it.
1: Fair enough. I'm sure both of you gentlemen are familiar with The Witcher video games, right?
2: Familiar, right. not played, but familiar. Okay.
1: They're based on a series of books by a Polish author, and I'm going to butcher this name, Andrzej Sapkowski. The first one was called The Last Wish, and I went ahead and picked that up because I found it in a bookstore for cheap. You could tell from his prose that English is not this gentleman's first language. <laughs> but regardless of that...
0: So he wrote in English?
1: I think it was translated. Hmm. But it was okay. It wasn't my cup of tea. I liked the world-building. But it just didn't draw me in. After that, I read, I reread one of my favorite books, and that is The Greatest Knight by Elizabeth Chadwick. It's a, a historical fiction book about Sir William Marshall, English knight of the 12th and 13th century. Hmm. And I got that because for Father's Day, Joy and the Kids got me a Kindle. I've never had an e-reader before, but now that I've got one, it's fantastic.
2: Yeah. I got one of those. It worked great for me for a while until I was so enthusiastic about A Wise Man's Sphere that I had Patrick Rothfuss sign it for me. And, and now it's hard to read anything else with <laughs> your signature.
1: I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I reread that book was because I had it in paperback, but they had it on sale on the Kindle for 3 nice. bucks, So I was like, yeah, I'm going to get that. I'd love to read that on here. And just because I got hit by the, the desire, I read through the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy as well. But that's, that's like eating popcorn to me. I mean, I can devour those just at no time fast. And now, what else was there? I feel like there was something else that I'm forgetting. Anyway, I just started a new book called The Tattered Banner. First book of the Society of the Sword by Duncan Hamilton.
2: All right. Could you give us a little bit about that one?
1: Yes. Let me see here. Here's what's on the flap, or here's what would be on the flap if like, you picked it up at a bookstore. In a world where magic is outlawed, ability with the sword is prized above all else. For Soren, this means a chance to live out his dreams. Plucked from a life of privation, he is given a coveted place at the Austin Himes Academy of Swordsmanship, an opportunity beyond belief. Opportunity is not always what it seems, however, and gifts rarely come without conditions. Soren becomes an unwitting pawn in a game of intrigue and treachery that could cost him not just his dreams, but also his life. The Tattered Banner is the first book of the swashbuckling fantasy trilogy, Society of the Sword.
2: So it's like SCA politics, just, you know, a <laughs> little more intensified. Uh, kind of. I don't get
1: involved in those type of things, so I would not know. But or,
2: yeah, I honestly don't get involved in the SCA. I know somebody out there is going to take bridge at that, but seriously, no.
1: But there was once magic in this universe. There was some war. It's banished. And so now skill with a sword is one of the most prized – people who have skilled with a sword are some of the most prized citizens and some of the most worshipped as heroes – and from the descriptions of the duels and the weapons, it seems like rapier fighters are the ones who are the top-notch. And so that appealed to me, and I thought it would appeal to you as well, Mike.
2: Yeah, rapier fighting is definitely something that I uh, that I relate very well to. So Absolutely love rapier.
1: Right now, I'm only a few chapters in. It's interesting how the Kindle... Usually you'd look at, like, what page you were on. Uh, you know, I'm on page 84, 85. I'm showing as seven percent done with the book
2: (laughs) that's the one thing that i dislike about my kindle is when i lose my place it is so hard to find again
1: yeah and brian brought this up in an earlier episode when with a book if you want to go back and try to find a character or an instance that was referenced that's not that hard you can flip through quickly and you can leave a bookmark if you need to with a kindle it's not so easy you got to press that left side of the page quick as you can. Nope, 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 nope. There it. Is. No, that's not either. Back, 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 back. There it is.
0: Oh, crud. Now I've lost where I was. <laughs> exactly.
1: So I've really enjoyed having this Kindle because yeah, I've got a lot of books on here as well. And not just fiction. I've talked a lot about the sword fighting books of Guy Windsor. Yes. I was able to get a copy of The Swordsman's Guide for free. No. It's the Swordsman Quick Guide, Book 6. Fencing theory is the intellectual abstract structure that fencers use to describe, define, and explain their art. In this book, professional swordsmanship instructor and author, Guy Windsor, introduces you to the uses of fencing theory and explains in detail all the major concepts. You can use this theory to better analyze and understand whatever swordsmanship styles you practice.
2: I have that book on my wish list. I generally go for primary sources, but I do have a few secondary sources, and Guy Windsor is one of the ones that I will go to. Oh,
1: I got it for free uh, during a short-term offer. If you've got a Kindle, though, or an Amazon account, you can get it for 3 bucks.
2: Not a bad idea.
1: No, it is not. So that's what I've been geeking out to recently. Books, books plenty, and as I sit with the rest of the world and wait with bated breath and a weary heart, for the next Patrick Rothfuss novel to come out. A feeling that is all too familiar for anyone who's ever read any Jordan. Yes.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, that uh, It's funny. The last two times I saw Patrick Rothfuss speak here in the Boston area, there were reassurances, we're working on book three. We hope to have it done. We hope to say something soon. <laughs> But that just means, you know, and this is the one thing that we got to be patient with, the editing process. Having a book that is also languishing in editing purgatory, I understand, Mr. Rothfuss. I understand.
0: Fair enough. Book two was in editing for seven or eight years, wasn't it? It was a long time.
2: It was a while. Well,
0: if you start to uh, run dry while you're waiting, I have another recommendation for you. Oh? I was reminded— I don't know exactly what brought it to mind, but there's a, a book called The Dragon and the George by Gordon Dixon, and it's about a medieval history professor who winds up astrally projecting himself into the medieval period, into the brain of a dragon. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a, a fun book. I think you'd enjoy it a lot.
2: That sounds like that would be right up my alley.
0: hmm
1: You had me on astrally projects himself into a dragon. <laughs> I'm going to add this to my wish list and check it out soon.
2: Yeah, it was written in the 70s, I believe. Yeah, it sounds like a thing for me to pick up when I'm sitting there next to my wife using gimme, gimme, gimme gestures saying, are you done with American Gods yet? Are you done with American (laughs) Gods yet? Are you done with American (laughs) Gods yet? So
1: which one of you fine gentlemen wants to go
2: next? I was going to say, Brian, what have you been geeking out to?
0: Well, for me, it's been computer graphics programming. I'm obviously not going to bore the audience with saying exactly what I've been doing because it's extremely esoteric, but I had the opportunity two weeks ago, I guess, to go to the SIGGRAPH conference. That's a professional conference about computer graphics and interactive stuff, and I was giving some demos about the software that I use professionally, and so I was just surrounded by the nerdiest people in the world, Uh, the people who are actually writing Computer graphics software and inventing new techniques for virtual reality or whatever. Um, Unfortunately, since I was doing demos and manning a booth, I didn't actually have the opportunity to go out and experience a lot of the conference. But I did go over to the Emerging Technologies room where they had this strange gizmo. They put this strap around your head and it's got these little motors that push on pressure points on your skull. And apparently, there's some kind of a weird reflex where if you push on a specific spot on the skull, it will cause you to want to just turn your head. Huh. So there's this guy with this this gamepad, Nintendo controller, and he's turning my head back and forth with the controller. It was just a a bizarre experience. It was really fascinating.
1: I feel like that Pixar already did this with the movie
0: Ratatouille. My theory is that it's got something to do with when mom wants to say, your shoes are over there, and they turn the child's head toward it so the, the kid can't resist. Oh. That's my theory. You know, if they they discovered this by putting a hanger, like a wire coat hanger, on someone's head, and it just made them turn their head. I don't know why they were putting coat hangers on their heads, but there you go.
1: The end game of this is when they want to tell their child, go clean your room, they still sit there. Mom pulls out her smartphone and brings up the iChild app.
2: (laughs) I want the add-on to this app when you tell them to go clean their room that you can press the other motor that keeps them from rolling their eyes at you.
0: (laughs) I think that one involves some invasive surgery.
1: And also that one costs $1.99 in the app store.
2: How much is that (laughs) surgery did you say?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It also clears up your child from randomly spouting ads.
2: Oh, yeah, this is the thing about implantables. Like, once we get to that level, the spyware and malware is going to be awful.
1: Oh, yes. Dad, the computer's not working. And did you know that right now Dell has a special for $3.99. You can get yourself a brand new system.
2: <laughs> Look, I clear out spam from my works comment section of the blog every day. If it was Dell, I would be thrilled. <laughs>
0: I was having a conversation about smart contact lenses a while back and it's like the idea of like having electronics in my eye like on in this contact lens kind of terrifies me but I would be willing to have elective surgery on my optic nerve to just inject that right into my brain before I would be willing to have contact lenses <laughs> but then you're you're right having the spam just right into my brain like that that's probably not a good thing
2: cuz I can imagine at that point they're not just having text telling you the keywords about it
0: Right.
1: You talk about someone with a controller making a person's head turn. Just imagine if you got some malware in your contact lenses or
0: in that implant.
2: I think that I would want to patent eye bleach before we got too far into this uh, into this technology.
0: <laughs> We're going to encrypt your optic nerve. Pay the ransom before we'll decrypt it, or else you're only going to be looking at our uh, our virus from now on.
2: Oh, gosh, and it's that dancing <laughs> baby from the 90s. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm never going to give you up. Or it's, here's all seven seasons of Sex and the City, which we're going to put on replay until you pay this much money.
2: Oh, crap. It's in Cantonese. (laughs) Or worse, oh, man, I didn't get the auditory
0: implants. All I can do is see it. I can't hear what they're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Turn on closed captioning, maybe.
1: All the while, people at the board meeting you're attending are wondering why you're
0: crying.
2: (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> or for the few who know why you're crying.
0: Right. So other than computer graphics and writing about computer graphics and talking to people about computer graphics, that's been kind of consuming my life the last three or four weeks.
2: Well, the fact that you're talking about computer graphics at a nerd convention and you're at the place where it's the contact, it is sad that you didn't get to go out and see what all the other nerds are <laughs> presenting. But you were the yeah. nerd that other nerds were coming to. So there's something in that.
0: Yeah, next time in town, maybe I'll uh, skip working a booth and actually go out and and see the stuff.
2: Yeah, I understand how that works. Working the Ren Fairs, I imagine it's something like the same thing. Like, it's great to be able to present what you have, but you really want to see what else is out there.
0: Mm -hmm. So what about you, Mike? What are you geeking out to?
2: There's been a lot that's been going on. Some of the things that you've mentioned in your reading list also hit my reading list, at least some overlap with the authors. I just read the first book of the Dresden Files, and uh, Ah, that was a fun vacation read. So very much enjoyed that, did its thing, and yeah, was great entertainment reading. The one thing that I really wanted to bring to the show this week, and I've hinted about it on our Facebook, is, and this initially doesn't seem so much like a nerd interest, but... The overlap that it has with so much of what we put into our fantasy and science fiction genres are just very much present in our minds from a very young age, and that is just the idea of free exploration, of free exploration of ruins, Mm -hmm. things that are of trying to piece together what was here and what wasn't here. When we took the kids camping out in one of the islands that's in the Boston Harbor, there are places there that you can camp. And so we set up camp on this island that had the ruins of an old army base. So the army came out and developed this island to defend the Boston Harbor. Then once World War II was over, they deactivated a lot of these forts and trees came up. The place went to ruin. Then came along the 70s and the Parks Department took over and started not really maintaining, but started to open things up so the public could access this. And so you have these bits of history, and they allow you any place that it's safe to go and do your own little dungeon crawl. You've mm-hmm. got these pictures that I've put up. There's one that there's an iron door, and actually probably steel, and it's gone to rust. And I'll post some more of these. I've got my hand on the handle of this door, and into it is just these dark hallways that turn left, turn right, turn any which way. And you can explore the old batteries from some of the mortars or some of the guns that they had to defend the harbor. And it just reminds me so much out of these fantasy dungeon crawls or these exploration games that we would play. When you don't know what's around the next corner, though it's, of course, it's not the same where you have these fantastical creatures, but it is, uh, mm-hmm. it is just hearkening to so much that's a part of the genre of what is it that's here, and that newness and that experience, and getting to share that with my kids was just a phenomenal experience.
0: Yeah, your vacation pictures didn't match the same the vacation pictures that everybody else took on that island.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> I followed some links. I'm like, wow, the stuff that Mike took pictures of doesn't really line up with everyone else.
2: (laughs) Let me post the rest of the... I'm not going to post the whole family pictures, but yeah, there are plenty more of the dark dungeon crawl stuff. And I only went to the places where... And I'm going to say this. I only went the places where you were allowed to go that the parks department deemed it safe. Mm -hmm. I talked with a ranger And we shared many stories of people who um, did not show such good sense and, (laughs) I hope, had really good insurance. I mean, you have steel staircases that have gone to rust and fallen out, and somebody sees there's no staircase, but still there's a pit on the third floor that leads from one end of the hallway or the other. I'm like, you know what? I'll bet you I could jump over that, because I'm awesome! <laughs> Hold my beer. <sighs> what the ranger said is, and apparently this was, as his friend said, such a Bill thing to do. And <laughs> I'm thinking that Bill's first name was probably hospital
1: (laughs) he's got his own file over at county both in the hospital and jail
2: (laughs) yeah but yeah i'll post a few more of those because it's a great place with some wonderful places to explore
1: see i think two things when i see just even the one picture that you've posted on our facebook page one that looks like a great place to play airsoft and two, and it looks like a great place to do a D and D style LARP.
2: Funny you mentioned that, because I was talking with one of the with uh, the camp director, and he said that a local group who did buffer wars or did medieval combat wars. And the more I talked to him, it sounded like Dagger here had gone out there and had their battles, which is an amazing place because you have the old parade grounds, you have a huge field that's great for field battles, and of course, uh, since LARPing has so many different dimensions that you can explore, it seemed like a great place that a lot of these local groups could take advantage of, and it's state land, so camping is is a real thing there. Oh,
1: this would be so much fun to get in and plan out. Wow. That'd be fun. Oh, yeah. So, did you find any rooms with treasure chests?
2: I – you know, it's funny. You talk about treasure exploration, and to some degree, there was some of that in a different dimension than perhaps you're initially thinking. But as we're exploring some of the beaches, my girls start looking more carefully at the stones. They start looking for artifacts because when this place left – Sometimes people just left things there. I have pictures of rooms I mean, that we couldn't get into that room, but I stuck my camera in, turned the flash on, and snapped a picture. And there are bookshelves left intact that were just abandoned. Some of them, I've heard in some other places, had books on them. So the children started looking through what we had with a finer eye and found pieces of china, like thick, good china, dated from the 1940s, and would take that over to the ranger station, and they would put it into their archives to be cataloged and then to be put on display once it was verified that this was actually something that would have been used on the island. So, yeah, treasure hunting, except the Indiana Jones mentality of treasure hunting. It belongs in a museum! (laughs) That is precisely what my youngest one did.
1: And if the LARPers come in and just take over the place, instead of snakes, you could go in dressed as Indiana Jones, go, Geeks. Why did it have to be geeks? <laughs> well, I think that wraps it up for Geek Out. And I think there's another topic that we have been wanting to address. The listener
2: like, question. Yeah,
1: Mike, you said that we for the first time ever, we had a listener question.
2: Yes, indeed. We had a listener, you'll have to forgive me if I pronounce it wrong, because I'm used to speaking the plural. Dunadon Jets had asked us the question, "I've never role-played before, save maybe once." Not part of a regular role-playing group. None of the people in his gaming group have ever role-played before. He's obviously never GM. So what role-playing game? should I explore? What should I get if this is something that we want to try out?
0: Good question. Well, so the obvious place is to be the uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I believe Wizards of the Coast produces like a basic kit with starter adventure and maybe even some starter characters, depending on whether or not they want to spend the time to, to roll up their own characters their first time out.
1: Is that the red box? Uh,
0: it was the red box for fifth ed- or fourth edition, whatever it was. I don't know what it is. It currently is in the, the most recent edition, but I'm sure there's something similar, and it's a, going to be a gentle introduction to the idea of role-playing. I personally, I started a little bit more complex with a system called Middle-Earth Role-Playing, which has been out of print for decades now, but it's an offshoot of Iron Crown Enterprise's role Master system, and there's, they've got kind of a stripped-down side version, I think, called HARP, which might be a good place to start if you want something a little bit more involved and a little bit more complex. But those are the standard fantasy role-playing places that I began in.
1: And let me add to the Middle-Earth one. One of the Middle-Earth campaigns that you ran was one of the most enjoyable sessions that both my wife and I have ever had.
0: (laughs) But that was a big campaign book, the Palantir Quest it probably wouldn't be the best place to start. You'd want to start with one of the like introductory adventures. Like
1: You find this little gold ring.
0: <laughs> I was, was going to say, there's one in the back of the MERP book called uh, Castle Arrow Bar, I think is what it was called. That's a pretty good standard dungeon crawl. Hey, you find a ruined castle, go in and see what's there, fight some orcs, and get some treasure. Cool.
2: What about you, James? If you're going to recommend a first-time role-playing group to go with a game, what do you say?
0: I've got a
1: couple of different ideas for this. A couple of the games that I've been looking at for myself that I've wanted to get into that were simple, that I could help introduce people to role-playing for the first time. One of them is called Dungeon World. It's bare-boned. Another one is called Warrior, Rogue, and Mage. It's simple. It's lightweight. It's very easy to roll up and lets people jump right in. Another thing is that the resources are available for free online.
2: Ooh, I like that price point.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. I would also recommend the Middle-Earth ones. They're hard to get a hold of, true, but there is some new Middle-Earth material that's coming out. I forget what company is releasing it.
2: Cubicle 7.
1: Right. And D&D is always a great place to start, even if you went and found some old books at a used bookstore, like some old 3.5 books, which there are just plenty existing out there in the world.
0: I would maybe say be careful with that because it's really easy to buy stuff from 3.5 that isn't exactly what you need because there's, I think, seven or eight editions of player handbooks, but you have to have the first one in order for the sixth one to make sense. That's a good point. And, yeah, it's easy to pick up stuff that's not quite the whole game.
1: (laughs) I gotcha. Another I would recommend would be Star Wars. Now, if you are geeky enough to say, hey— I want to do a role-playing game, then you are more than geeky enough to know all about Star Wars. <laughs> really? And I have not played them yet. Uh, most of my Star Wars gaming experience has been the old D6 stuff from West End Games. Oh, yeah. Which we all played and was fun. But the new stuff that's been coming out from Fantasy Flight Games it looks good. I mean, the resource material looks beautiful and depending on when you want to do it, they've got two books that are out. One is called Edge of Empire, and the other one is called Age of Rebellion. And if you want to play some nice beginner starter stuff, some fun adventures set in the Star Wars universe. One focuses on bounty hunters and smugglers. The other book focuses on the rebellion. Both are fun storylines that you can sink your teeth into.
2: And they actually have a third core rulebook of the Force and Destiny, if you want to rule something that's more Jedi-oriented. Perfect. All three can work seamlessly together.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, There was another one that I was thinking about. There's a series of books out there that use something called the Cortex Plus System. You build a pool of dice based on all your, your traits and your skills. And if you can learn this one system, it applies to a lot of different games. If you want to do Marvel Heroes, you can use that. If you want to go and play Firefly, that's what the Firefly rulebook uses as well. And both of them... The Dresden Files, too. Yes, and Dresden. And if you look online, of course, you got to get the rulebook. But once you've got the rulebook and some character sheets, you can look online and find some $5 starter adventures to get you and your party going.
2: Again, price point is a wonderful thing there.
1: Exactly. And the nice thing with these as well, besides the $5 Quick Adventures, there's a lot of supplements online for all of these games that usually you can download for free. Excellent. Mike, what about you?
2: Uh, You know, for me, it was all about assessing certain criteria. And the first of the questions is, what fits their genre of interest? suppose that you have a game that you think is just absolutely perfect, easy to learn, lots of things for the newbie player, the newbie GM, and they want to play hardcore fantasy. And this is Victorian age noir. I don't really care how easy it is to go into. It's the wrong thing for them. So (laughs) I figured out that they wanted to do something that was pretty hardcore fantasy oriented. So that put a lot of my early choices off the list. I, of course, would recommend the Star Wars D6. It's easy. You can, if you know where to look, get it for cheap. But that's not what they're into. The next thing is it has to have a low price point for entry. I do not want to send them to a fantasy role-playing system where they have to spend uh, $630 on the core rulebook, the player's guide, the GM's guide, the creature's manual, the NPC's compendium, the separate gear and equipment guide, and fill up their entire bookshelf and riffs, only to find out that they don't like
1: it. Riffs. <laughs> riffs. I can remember, Brian, your bookshelves straining under the weight of all of those supplements.
0: <laughs> yes. There is far too much risks out there. Mm. And I didn't even have all of I only bought the ones that I was interested in, and there were still too many.
2: Oh. The third thing, simple mechanics. If they've never done this before, you don't want to give them too much to chew on all at once. And... I am looking at a few systems in particular that there's no reason that you should have all of those mechanics all at once. Never. Shouldn't exist.
1: I am a big (laughs) fan of the games where all you need is a d20 or percentiles or, not and, or a handful of d10s or d6s.
2: That makes sense. Roll your success, count it up, and have fun.
1: Boom. Exactly.
2: The last thing that I really thought was important is for there to be some sort of online community support. It doesn't matter if it's the best game in the world. If there's nowhere for them to turn if they have a question, then you've just let them out high and dry. So I wanted to make sure that I found something that fit their fantasy genre, had a low price point, simple mechanics, and a place where they could go to a G+ community or a forum and have what they need in pretty short order. After assessing all of these, I had to do some independent research on my own, and I found a game that I since then have purchased, and I've been reading through the core rule book, and I'm going to give this one a try myself. I haven't played it yet, but I think it was the right fit for this group, and that is Dungeon World.
1: Wow. It's like you can see into the studio I'm in right now, because I have just—one of the games that I researched as well was Dungeon World, and that's what I've got pulled up on my computer right now. No kidding. No kidding. It's an open-licensed game. It's built off of a, another game called Apocalypse World. Mm-hmm. And one thing that they praise is that it kind of splits the difference between that and D&D. And one reason I was looking at it was because it uses a language-focused game system rather than a numbers one. Mm. So I don't know if that quite means you would be able to tell me more. But my take on that was that the story trumps individual and obscure rules.
2: Yes and no. When we talk about language above numbers, from what I'm gathering so far, the GM never makes a die roll. Okay. So what you do and what you choose to do affects the scenery. And there are some things that are story factors, and there are some mechanical triggers that happen in response to what you choose to do. Instead of standard turns and standard rounds, everybody makes moves. And if you say, well, I move to defend this person, you can mechanically affect them, and you will trigger something from the NPCs or from the monsters. If you choose to attack, say I roll double sixes, because the attack rolls are made with 2d6. And actually all of the move rolls, I believe thus far, are made with 2d6. And if you roll high enough, you can choose to do damage and then move to safety or you can say you know i want to roll my damage plus i want to roll an extra 1d6 but because you rolled that extra 1d6 you did the extra damage you're putting yourself at risk and now you trigger an attack from one of the orcs you're facing and the gm doesn't have to make a die roll for that attack you attack the orc you opened yourself up to the attack the orc does six damage
1: boom done i like that i like the simplicity of it I like, there's no need to do an incredible amount of math to figure out if you hit, how much damage you did, what the effects are. It's just plain, simple, done.
2: And do you know what? If they like this and they want to do something that has finer brush strokes, great. If they want to move to something that is more nitty gritty in the mechanical details, great. You provide them a mechanism for easing their way in from the kitty of the pool and let them learn how to swim. Cool. Now, one that I did come across first, which I think is a reasonable try-it-out with somebody who's never done role-playing, is also Fiasco. That allows you to do one evening, one shots with different scenarios, and every evening you roll up a different scenario to do more role-play that has almost zero mechanics. Like you don't make die rolls to attack anything. You do roll some dice at the beginning and you select those dice to try to shift the mechanics of who has things go poorly, who has things take the status quo, who has super success. But every round you're jockeying to make a grab for one of those pre-rolled die. And also, it depends on the temperament of your gaming group and the sensitivities of your gaming group. And I always want to remain open to the sensitivities of those that are at the table. Some of these scenarios should be modified, especially if you're playing with younger players. I don't remember all of them, but there were a couple that we thought, eh, it's a little bit more than innuendo there. So let's scratch (laughs) that out and change that to something else. But that, I think, also provides, depending on the sensitivities of the people at the table, an easy way to understand what role-playing is, even without the mechanics. But that's
0: just... On that topic, something that I've seen happen with new role-playing groups is people don't really have a strong idea of what everybody else at the table is comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And it's not uncommon to have you know, one or two players is just going to go wild to, Hey, I can do anything. I can say anything. I can really cut loose and do all the things that I couldn't do in real life. And that can make other players uncomfortable. And so any new group, uh, particularly with people who have never played before, it's a good idea to have a conversation about what are our boundaries and how can we signal to one another that this situation is making me uncomfortable. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
2: absolutely. Yeah. That is a common theme in role-playing groups.
0: And I'd hate to see somebody completely turned off from a hobby because their first experience was with somebody whose boundaries were significantly wider than their own were.
1: And they're left with the impression that all gaming groups are like this and they choose not to try it again. Exactly.
0: And just for an immediate suggestion for one mechanism that can be used at, there's a – I forget what exactly it's got. I think it's just called the X-Card where you make a big X on a card in the middle of the table, and at any time, someone can touch the card to indicate, I'm uncomfortable with what's going on. They don't have to justify it. They don't have to actually say, I'm uncomfortable with this. They just touch the card, and the group agrees, okay, well, we're just going to move that off screen, and we're going to move forward without whatever was going on. And it's an easy nonverbal way so that you don't have to express necessarily why you're uncomfortable with something. You can just Touch the card, and everybody says, oh, okay, well, that was maybe too far, and we'll move on.
2: Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I like that. I like that a lot. And if they want, this opens up the possibility of having a private conversation with the GM later. Say, mm-hmm. well, if they wish, this is why I was uncomfortable, and what can we do to have a an open and welcome gaming table for everyone in the group?
1: Yes. Well, now I think we all have some ideas of games that, not just for new people, that we want to try ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would like to give the new Star Wars games a try one day. And this Dungeon World one that we've talked about, Mike, the more I read about it, that just looks fun. Just looks simple and fun. You talked about that you went ahead and bought it. And we talk about price point. If I can ask, how much did you get it for?
2: $3,721, $3,721, easy I, for anybody to get into.
1: I've got that right in my wallet right, right here. I
2: know, right? Yeah. Um, no, the price point, if you go with the PDF, is 10 bucks.
1: Oh, that's nice.
2: Yeah, and if you want to get a print version, currently they're out of print, but it just so happened that my friendly local game store had a copy, and it is a soft cover, roundabout 500 page, because this includes Monster Manual and everything, for 26 bucks
1: with tax it's not bad at all right i'm doing a quick search on amazon let's see here dungeon world paperback they're selling it through third-party sellers but they've got quite a few new for 25 bucks
2: 25 there you go so
1: you add in a few more bucks for shipping and there you go exactly i may have to look into that well that brings us to our next topic something that we have been wanting to discuss for a while But we've wanted to do it while we've had all three of us on the air together. And that is the concept of, is hacking a video game considered a sin?
0: This is a question that came up as a result of a search at the Christian Gamers Guild. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I operate their website. I didn't get any context. The query was just, is hacking a video game a sin for Christianity?
2: Wow. Those are two those are actually two very big questions packed into one. And part of this is there is a specific branch of theology called harmartology, which asks the question, what is sin? So I think that before you even begin, is X a sin? You really have to ask the question, well, what is sin? And we Mm -hmm. all get the impression that that is something that we're not supposed to do. We have (laughs) general ideas as to what this is, but let's get specific. And I could probably spend about 3,000 pages getting specific, but we don't have that time here. I'm going to choose two broad categories to approach this from, and let's get to the heart of one of the Hebrew words for sin, hamartia, from which we get harmatology, and it is basically missing the mark. What is God's will, and you miss that goal. Other concepts of sin, which are very much present in the Wesleyan-Arminian tradition, which I am a part of, has the understanding of it as being a willful transgression of a known will of God. These are two different definitions of sin. They are two very different things. Both are true. The one with missing the mark is that it doesn't have to be known. You can fall short of God's glory without deliberately defying God. But I think that with either of these, we have a way of painting two different pictures and the question is which of these pictures do we want to put this this question in does it fall short of god's intent for humanity to hack a video game so i guess we have the next question what do you mean by hacking it i mean
1: if you look up hacking as a general term on like wikipedia it's the intellectual challenge of creatively overcoming limitations of software to achieve novel clever or different outcomes So that's a pretty broad
0: definition, you know?
2: By that definition, that sounds like a neat hobby.
0: Yeah. But the common vernacular definition differs from that pretty significantly.
2: Yeah. Did you have any sense as to what the person meant? I mean, were they trying to overcome, when you talk about overcome limitations, are these copyright limitations? Is this copy protection that we're overcoming for the purposes of distribution?
0: Well, as I said, the only thing that I had was a search query. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I didn't have any idea about the motivation or intent of this person who was doing the search.
2: Because I could see somebody using hacking to say, oh, look here. I'm going to take Mario sprites, and I'm going to replace it with Princess's Peach sprites. <laughs> now it's Super Princess Peach Sisters. I mean, <laughs> that's fantastic.
1: Let me throw some context onto this as a whole. Um, sure. Because when Brian first brought this to us, it was around the time that I was reading an article about some hacking or some cheating that was going on with the eSports game Overwatch. Mm. Never played it myself. I've seen it. It's big. You know, it came onto the scene in the past year. It since, you know, has exploded online. There was this company in Europe called themselves Bossland. They were cheat makers. They would create for you a character in the game... You pay them money and this character would have all sorts of cheats and modifications built into it so that you could see everything on your radar. You would see friendlies, enemies, the name, how much health they've got. You would get an automatic instant aim, an aimbot, which you see an opponent coming, you swing your crosshairs, your character kind of in the general direction of the enemy, and boom, you're instantly aimed at them. You're instantly aimed at their head. No other movement on your part required. Now all you have to do is just pull the trigger. Instant kill shots. You could just waltz through Main Street, look left, boom, 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 look right, boom, boom, boom. And enemies are falling around you. And they were selling these starting at 13 euros a month and up from that. Wow. So you could buy this. I don't understand exactly how, but you could insert it into the game. And suddenly you're beating people who have put hundreds and hundreds of hours playing this game
2: okay so you can be a little twerp you can be a jerk
1: exactly now in this case one you're going against the intentions of the creators who just wanted to create a clear and level playing field where skill would be what determines the outcome you are causing a negative experience for the people that you are playing with Your intentions are to disrupt the game for purely own-self edification, and in a rather malicious manner, yeah, now we're crossing into sin territory. Now, on the opposite side of that spectrum, we're well aware of games like Skyrim and Fallout. I myself have lobbed probably a couple of hundred hours of playing on these two separate games. Um, from the latest Skyrim and on Fallout 3 and Fallout 4. Now, there is a rich and vibrant modding community for these games out there. You talked about you know someone wanting to change a couple of lines of code and change Super Mario to Princess Peach. We've taken that to the latest technological degree. You know, say that you want the dragons that come at you in Skyrim to look like Smog from Lord of the Rings.
2: Yes, I do. I want that. I want that very badly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We all do. And now someone has made a mod for that. And let's say that you want to make a mod so that the waters that come down the river are more clear and you can see more fish through them. And that the trees look more realistic and lifelike and that the buildings look more like a Norse medieval village. There's mods for that. Let's say you want your armor to look cooler or some different shades, or so that when you blacksmith and create these things, you've got more options. There's someone who's made a mod for that. Let's say that instead of dragons, you see a gigantic Thomas the Train engine falling down from the sky, breathing fire and rampaging through the lines of soldiers.
2: Please tell me that's real. That Please is real.
1: absolutely real.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> And let's say that in Fallout, instead of raiders and bad guys coming at you, it's a line of 80s, 90s WWE wrestlers coming at you and trying to punch you. There's a mod for that as well. And it goes from the silly to the practical, just from wanting to insert weird, crazy things in the game to just making the game look even more beautiful and crisp and... And even people who have added whole new storylines to the game, new characters, even with voice acting, and they're not trying to break it, they're not trying to do anything as we said malicious, they're trying to add to the experience as a whole, no, that's not a sin, this is just adding more fun. And with that intent and with those actions, I don't think that's a sin at all.
0: As much I'd like as I, to expand, go ahead, expand on that just a little bit uh, because, for one thing, the modding system in Bethesda's games is an official part of the game. And so modding, is that really hacking? You're not doing something that wasn't intended to use. And also, if you've got a mod that makes the game easier for some reason, and if achievements are something that you care about, Bethesda's got a mechanism where if you've got a mod enabled, achievements are disabled. So you can't cheat, in air quotes – Using a mod, because anything that well, will be measuring your... They've got your that code. now,
1: but when these games first came out, before they started including like the world-building packages and the ability to make it easier, there were people out there who were going into the code and making the changes before the game companies decided to embrace it as a whole, though.
0: Right. I just wanted to make that small clarification before I moved on. True.
1: Yeah, now they make it very easy. They encourage people to do that, because the more people that do it, the more people that are playing the game. But from the beginning, before they started that, there were people who were modding those games before it was made easy, just with the purpose of making it look cooler. No evil intent there. They just wanted to make it look neater or add some different aspects to it.
2: I think one of the ideas that you were hitting on that I think even more important than what is the intent of the creator, because there are a lot of things that happen even in pen and paper games that are beyond the intent of the creators, Uh, even using their own mechanics. I've heard game designers say, oh, I never really thought somebody would be able to do that. I never thought somebody could do that. That's a build I had never even considered. I'm not sure how much we're going to put their intent in creating those structures. Once we get into breaking those structures and recreating those structures, the question that we have is, is this building the community or is this detrimental to the community? Because I think once we have these communities of gamers that have come together for an understood purpose with understood guidelines, if you subvert those understood guidelines to put yourself above others, whether it be for your stats, for your own personal enjoyment, and defying all the commonly understood ground rules, then, yeah, you're doing something that is communally disruptive. And I don't really see how a Christian is going to say, yes, I am being communally destructive for the glory of God. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I suppose it depends on the community.
2: This is the thing: is that if it is a, if you think that this community does not deserve to exist, why are you participating in it to begin with? So, yeah, I don't think that Overwatch is the thing that holy wars are made of. Uh,
1: <laughs> on a side note about that Overwatch thing, Blizzard took them to court and they demanded 8.5 million from that company.
2: Surprise, surprise.
1: Yeah, and because that company was completely absent in their defense, the court sided with Blizzard summary judgment. Mm-hmm. And besides that $8.5 million in damages, they ruled that the company Bossland also owes 175000 in attorney fees, <laughs> and the company is prohibited from selling programs that exploit any Blizzard games in the future.
2: Excellent. Yeah, I think that we could actually explore this topic. Given the great breadth that this complex question is for probably several episodes. But I think that without more information, I think that this is a fair, broad understanding of the basics of the fundamentals of this question. If we get any listeners that say that they've got more specific questions about it, I'd be more than happy to examine the theological background that the listener comes from, because I think that that mm-hmm. is important when you're engaging in your own theological explorations of Christian ethics. But by and large, Stick to probably one of the most oversimplified rules that you possibly could. How would you want other gamers to encourage your progress through a game? If you think that somebody else cheating and taking dominance over you is going to damage you, then perhaps that is not the thing to do to other people. If you create something and somebody can make some other derivative creative work that they are not going to sell, if you think that you would be pleased by that then by all means, do that to and with and for some of these other game creators.
0: Yeah, I like how that's stated. And just to tie that back to some actual scripture, that would be Matthew seven twelve. Funny that.
2: Hmm. <laughs> Strange. I, had, I hadn't realized that.
0: <laughs> oh, I know you realized that. <laughs> <laughs> there is one other small aspect of that well, not a small aspect, a rather huge aspect. A lot of what people think of as hacking is cracking which would be disabling whatever copy protection so that they can get a game for free instead of paying for it. And I would say that unequivocally, theft is a sin.
1: Yeah, that one is a bit of a no-brainer.
2: Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Back up, back up, back up. (laughs) Okay. Do you have any scriptural support for that position? Oh, wait, I just read the No, Never not mind. really. Never mind. I got it. I got it. I got it. Don't worry. I just found a stone tablet sitting here. Never mind.
0: Yeah. Huh.
1: There, there's an old man who just crawled down from a mountain tapping you on the shoulder, looking a little perturbed.
2: Um, you know, it's, it, here's, here's the first He's thing. He's like,
1: I've written it down once. I ain't doing it again.
2: <laughs> you know, that's the thing is that. I don't think that you're going to find any podcasting group or any gaming group that's going to tell you that, yes, in defiance of federal law, yes, you should be stealing copyrighted works. And that's a great way, A, to get your podcast shut down. Besides that, you are going to find people that want to nitpick this and say, well, I'm not stealing anything because theft requires the acquisition of a good on my end and the loss of a good on their end. I'm just you know getting a copy of it and i'm not taking it away from anybody else but when you're defeating these copyright it has been shown over and over and over again particularly in the music industry that when you have unchecked sharing the profits of the music industry go down if you have the unchecked sharing of hacked games the revenue stream of games and gaming industries go down it does have a marked effect, and and as much as you might even justify this by saying, well, some of these bigger companies are evil. Some of the music companies have an unjust system. Great. That's fine. That's a wonderful position to support that the structures within that system are unjust. That is not logically connected to your acquisition of an ill-gotten game.
0: And speaking not. as a computer graphics artist, I really like to get paid for my work. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, so if you want Brian to get his paycheck, don't hack the games he works on, please.
1: Or if you do, add Thomas the Train.
2: Yeah, no doubt. Right, have we pretty well covered that one? It sounds like it.
1: I'm going to claim exhaustion on my end.
2: Okay, then why don't we roll this over to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week? Let's. Yeah, I'm actually kind of troubled by you guys. In the last two episodes, you've gone huge into buying and building a bunker, you've moved (laughs) your house, and I'm looking at the zombie preparedness budget, and you guys have left me with nothing.
1: Hey, man, go big or go home. But you can't go home anymore because there's zombies in it, so you got to go big.
2: Okay, well, do you know what? No. No, you don't have to go big. There are strategies that you have without blowing the budget. And I'm going to tell you that there is one absolute certain way, as demonstrated in the 1980s, of neutralizing the zombie threat. And that is, of course, the music of Michael Jackson. (laughs) You start that playing, they go from chomp to stomp. Dancing zombies, no threat.
1: Let me tell you right now, I'm already thrilled by this plan
2: and see this is what you've got. Once they're dancing, nobody's getting bitten, everything's under control.
1: Isn't there the problem at the end though, once the zombies have danced and they've gone off stage left, about the remaining people turning into wolf people?
2: You know, I, uh, I am going to leave the werewolf apocalypse plan of the week to somebody else. That's another podcast.
1: <laughs> see, I already have that one taken care of.
2: I think white- Ride sticks.
1: Do. do what? Rawhide sticks. Rawhide sticks, and you destroy every single flea and tick collar in the world. (laughs) Between distracted by the rawhide sticks and the fleas and ticks, which will stick to them and annoy them and drive them mad, the problem's going to take care of itself.
2: I think I like this plan.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, gentlemen, I think that is going to wrap it up this week. Hopefully, we'll be able to get together again sooner than two months to do our next episode. But either way, Mike, glad you're back with us, brother. I'm glad to be back, too. So from all of us here at Geek at Arms podcast, be safe, be blessed, be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be
0: awesome.